This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. This month, the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast is delighted to welcome author Kelly Ayton to the show. Although she writes in a number of genres, she's here today mostly to talk about her historic fantasy series, The Arrow of Artemis, and especially the third book, The Sagittarius, which should be out from Regal Crest by the time this airs. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us about the setting and premise of your series and how you came to write it? So the setting and premise of the Arrow of Artemis series, uh, which includes books The Fletcher, The Archer, and The Sagittarius. It is set about 29 BCE. It seems oddly specific, I know, but it's set in ancient (laughs) Greece. It's set in ancient Greece, and it focuses on, the very first book actually focuses on a young woman whose father is dying. She inadvertently saves an Amazon who's traveling to give news to another tribe. And with her father dying and the fact that she has killed men who were responsible to the local landowner of the area. She knows that she's not safe where she's at. Her home is going away. Her women are not allowed to hold property. So even though her father is a very famous Fletcher for the king of the area, I can't remember my own books. Sorry. When he dies, and her mother has been long dead, when he dies, she will not have a place. She would have to leave anyways. So he begs this woman that she saved, this Amazon, to take her away. And so she travels with the Amazon to another tribe and then eventually back to the Amazon's home tribe, and she seeks to become an Amazon. So the first book is very much a a coming-of-age story about Mm -hmm. this main character, Kiri Fletcher, who is looking for her place in the world, who's searching for a new family to essentially replace the one that she's lost. And from there, that coming-of-age book really turned significantly darker in the second book, where she has a lot more uh, at stake and she faces a lot more adversity. And it it does not end so well. Uh, Uh I I think that's prevalent when you see when you see maybe reviews online. It doesn't, the Archer doesn't end as well. It's well, a bit of a cliffhanger. So a usual middle book thing is you have to like, you know, ramp up the stakes in the middle book. Well, so this series uh, was actually never intended to be a series. I wrote the Fletcher. Here's the history. I wrote the Fletcher after com- completing my first Xena fan fiction. Uh-huh. Uh, actual, uh, legitimate, original Xena fan fiction, Xena Gabrielle. I was bored a couple years ago and uh, after moving across the state where I live I really had no hobbies nothing to occupy my time I was reading too much uh, meaning beyond wait, my budget wait 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 how can you read too much <laughs> beyond my budget how is that oh okay <laughs> you know so you can only read so many books and then you start delving into free books and and uh, it just kind of goes downhill and from it spirals there. down the drain at that point yes. oh man yes <laughs> And, and I, you know, and there are really some really good free and low cost books out there, but there are some, there were enough bad ones that I said, you know what, I'm just going to do this myself. Uh-huh. And I had started a, a Xena fanfic a long time ago, like 
not a long time ago, maybe seven years ago. And it just stopped. I did maybe 20,000 words and I was never a writer. So that is, that was hard. It was something I tried to do. I was never a writer. And I decided I'm going to finish this. So I finished it. And that world, it was amazing. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of research on ancient Greece, on uh, the warfare battle weapons, uh, the ships that they used in Rome. I, I did a ton of research. Yeah, and now you've, you've, you've got the research and nothing to do with it, so... Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it stayed with me, and I ended up going on and finishing another book that I had started, which was uh, Urban Fantasy. I had started it uh, also about seven or eight years ago, and I finished that book, but the ancient Greece wouldn't leave my head. It uh-huh. would not. So I ended up writing two more books, which was The Archer and the Sagittarius, it was never going to be a series that that coming of age was never going to be a series. But when I posted it online, so many people said, well, what happens to Kiri? We want to know more about her life. And you know how you just don't want to disappoint people. So, uh, yeah, I, I have a series that started with a standalone book, too. Yes. <laughs> See, so you, you understand completely. And then I wrote The Archer and I was not going to make it a cliffhanger. But sometimes when you're writing and you get to a certain point in the book and you say to yourself, I think this is the end. And you're like, oh, this is a bad end. And within maybe half an hour after I finished writing The Archer and my um, my girlfriend looked at me and said, yeah, I think that's a good ending. It's kind of a dick ending, but it's a good <laughs> ending. So within a half an hour of those words, I started writing The Sagittarius obsessively. And there's no way I could have put the two together. The Sagittarius is is significantly larger than the other two books. So hopefully that will make people happy. But yeah, so in ancient Greece, the reason why I was said oddly specific 29 BCE is because there are characters in the third book that are actually real historical figures, uh-huh. um, just two, only two figures. So that's why I said 29 BCE, because looking at the timeline, those are when those two figures existed together. So, you know, because while while some of the stuff. I didn't, I wasn't explicitly there. Obviously it's set, set on Amazon tribes, not something that we have definitive proof. Uh, I did a lot of research on that too, but so there are some things that I, tr- that I tried to be very, very accurate on. Um, I did a lot of research, like I said, but other things, you know, some places and people are, are made up. So, so, so I'm curious because, you know, since you mentioned that you first got interested in the setting by writing Xena fanfic and then and then Amazons and of course everybody thinks about the Amazons and Xena who which are not particularly historically rounded. No. <laughs> uh, which which take on Amazons are you working from? As far as yeah, so so is there some particular historical theory about them that you're working from? You know, there really isn't. It was originally the thought was it was a tribute to like the Xena series. So when you have the, the Uber or which is, you know, the, the yeah. character set in a new time, but then there are other ones where you kind of did your own thing with the characters and they were definitely inspired by those two characters. As far as the, the take on the Amazon tribes, I did a lot of research. They didn't have any definitive proof. They had some proof of, uh, maybe further east where women they found significant tribes of women who larger bone structure they were clearly warriors symbolizing that they were buried with their weapons and that was the closest that i could find to proof of amazons besides um, statuary and depictions of the roman gladiator arenas where they had they called them amazone but there weren't actually documented 
proof of Amazon tribes. And I guess what I did was, you know, you look at all of these fictional stories of Amazons and I kind of made it what I wanted to see, if that uh-huh. makes sense. If you could pick an Amazon tribe that's trying to live in a world that's primarily male dominated, how would this tribe logistically exist and how would they continue to exist, right? You have to have contact with men. You have to, some of them have relationships with men, which it goes into more in the second and third book. How does that work? And I decided that a sister city, so not all the women are with women, but there are no men or boys over a certain age that are allowed to exist in this, in the uh, the Amazon tribe, the Amazon nation, right? Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Michigan the Women's Music Festival that yeah. was in Michigan for, what, 35 years until they finally stopped. Uh-huh. Um, I actually based some of my idea on that, which was, you know, you could only have boys under a certain age at the festival. Anything uh-huh. over that age, the men were not allowed. So that was kind of also my thinking, you know, it's it's a comfort level and a very female-centered mm-hmm. society. So has history always been a, an interest of yours in general, or was it very much centered on this, this one particular project that sparked your interest? You know, I, I wouldn't say that traditional history has been an interest of mine. I, I'm not, I don't romanticize the 1800s. Uh, Civil War, I was forced to watch a lot of videos as a kid, so know that... <laughs> I, I could I could do without ever hearing the rum pum pum drums again. Once you go a little further back to medieval times, I mean, who hasn't romanticized medieval times? But I'm too logical where I look back and I say, oh, it was not such a good time for women. And I just can't, unless it's just a fantasy, it's hard for me to think outside the box and say, ah, I would have loved to have lived then. But there is a romantic quality to, to the 17 and 1800s, uh, you know, maybe London, or even further back medieval times, who doesn't want to be a princess, but honestly, I would have rather been a knight. So but but going even further back, I think my first huge exposure to historical fiction was uh, the is it the Earth Earth's Children series, Jean mm-hmm. all, all? Yeah, I started reading those when I was maybe 12, probably too young. They're giant books. <laughs> As um, I recall, yeah, that's usually younger than they would suggest. But <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot more, uh, a lot in, of adult content involved mm-hmm. in those books. But but one of the things that, that caught my attention through those books was the ancient, the depictions where she did a lot of research about all the basic things that you take for granted now. You know, how do you even cure leather? How do you make things? How do you, how do you nap flint? I mean, just these basic things. How do you carry fire from place to place, weave baskets? Basic skills that the ancient cultures had. So that was one of the things that really fascinated me, and that, and that has carried through probably my entire life. So when I wrote this book, it was almost, uh, these three books, it was just as much a tribute to her books, because I looked up medicinal herbs, and I, you know, I did a lot of, I watched a lot of videos and read a lot about how did they actually make arrows before you had tools, modern tools for making arrows, you know, straightening the staves, and, mm-hmm. and you know, using flint to drill holes, and Stuff like that. So I, I confess that the what about sixty percent of my interest in history is material culture. It's just the the physical material culture of everyday life, and, and it's just fascinating and 
I think sometimes I, I write stories to like be able to use that. <laughs> well, and that's good because I, I mean, when I read historical fiction, sometimes that's why I read the stories for exactly what you're saying, that material culture, just to see, because I, I'm one of those people that likes to read and learn how to do stuff. I mean, it might be just out there and I'll spend, I'll fall down the rabbit hole and spend hours reading about just whatever, right? Oh, I don't, I've never heard of that. Well, what is this? And then I'll start reading and I'm like, wow, I've just expanded my knowledge and something else probably <laughs> fell out at the meantime. So, so you've written in several different genres in your other books. Are there any special challenges or, you know, particular delights of writing in historic settings that are different from writing, say, contemporaries or science fiction? You know, I, I think... There are, so one of the things I loved about writing uh, in historic writing, obviously, uh, was actually the research. Because like I said, I like learning new things and, and some of the things just fascinated me. And I've always been fascinated by, you know, sword fighting because, you know, that whole knights and damsels kind of thing. But it's not heavily focused on sword fighting with my particular historic fiction. But there is the archery uh, aspect, you know, I have actually had my own bow and arrows uh you know uh, i used to shoot years ago i sold it when i moved to a much more populated area you could <laughs> hurt somebody so i mean it's just it was a past life for me sort of but watching all these videos and uh there are some truly talented individuals out there that practice instinctive archery so i've had some negative comments on my book saying um she's a mary sue right my main mm -hmm. character is a mary sue nobody can do that but, you know, I will point you to three different people, videos that practice instinctive archery. They make their own arrows and they do exactly that. They can spin on a dime and shoot through a wedding ring, you know. Uh -huh. So this is not, these are not impossible things. These people do this. And it's, it is a very, uh, it is a, it is more than a skill. This is something, it's instinctive. It's not everybody can do this. So that was what I tried to come across with her is that she had this in instinct that most people don't have, and it put her above and beyond in that particular aspect. Yeah, well, when you think about it, any skill like that, I mean, it by definition involves a lot of practice. And how is it stranger to be able to shoot an arrow like that than to say, be able to sink a basket from the other end of the court five times out of six, you know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, and not everybody can do that, even if they practice their whole lives. So exactly. I think that's, you know, so one of the things that I loved, you know, the research is one of the main things that I love. And I actually do a lot of research for all of my books, even the simplest books. Some of them I find are a lot less research. And those are actually the quickest books to write because research is probably 40% of my time. But the one of the hard things about writing histor this particular historical fiction set in, you know, 30 BCE, right? Yeah. Uh, ancient Greece it's really hard to come up with some of the things, find some of the, the data, some of the details. I would try to think of, uh, I'd have a question that would come up. So, you know, when you're writing and you come to a point and you're like, oh, I, I don't know about that. I need to go look it up. So it's hard to research stuff from that time period because there aren't really detailed records that, uh, that you have. Um, I couldn't, I just simply couldn't find the information. And sometimes I had to make stuff up. Sometimes I had to extrapolate with what I knew. You know, there's not a lot of uh, recorded data for the small stuff, like the inconsequential stuff that you might put in a story. But I like a lot of detail. So, uh -huh. um, and if you don't have massive amounts of time or access to a, like a huge library, 
you know, you're kind of forced to scour the internet for hours. And, and while I'm good at it, I have my limits. Yeah. So. And the internet can be peculiarly specific in some cases. Oh yeah. So never depend on Wikipedia. (laughs) So another thing when I did this particular series and you wouldn't think, but not just this series, but all of my books, math. So when I write, I like to be as detailed as possible. So I actually drew out, uh, I have a map of where all my cities are located uh, in Greece, right? All of the Amazon mm-hmm. cities. And I had to figure distance based on the approximate, like one city, the approximate location to the approximate location of another, fig- figure distance between all of these cities, uh, travel times, uh-huh. how long would it take them to travel from one city to another? How long does it take for uh, an ancient Roman ship to sail across the Ionian Sea, you know, and it's like, well, how do I find the speed of an ancient Roman ship? Oh, there are books on that. I think I've got one of them. <laughs> right. So it took, it takes some, it takes some uh, scouring, but then, you know, then you do the math. So I had to actually look up, I'm like, oh man, I can't remember circumference. So I'm like looking up, you know, pi r squared and <laughs> uh, because I'm trying, because, you know, when, for instance, uh, in the first book, you know, and obviously I already mentioned that she wants to become an Amazon. So there are trials that she has to go through. So you have to run around the circumference of the nation. I'm like, oh, well, crap. How how big is this nation? What's the circumference? What would be a slow running speed if she has to stay in the trees, uh, you know, a thick forest? So, I mean, it's really you're just making stuff up at that point, but you're trying to make it up as accurate as possible, which seems really strange. Yeah, no, I get it. And and then there are always the points where you simply cannot come up with anything and you figure out a way to, to fuzz it, you know, to it's like, yeah. she's doing this highly specific thing and I'm going to talk about this, this bit on the edge of it and you can imagine the rest and I don't have to actually say. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly it. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing about going too far back with historical writing is just finding the information that you're looking for. I said two of the, two of the characters in the third book are real characters, uh, one is uh, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavius, mm-hmm. uh, Octavianus. Uh, he was actually born Gaius Octavius. For anybody that's familiar with, you mm-hmm. know, Roman history, this, yep. he's like the, the nephew of Ju- uh, adopted nephew of Julius Caesar, um, who changed his name. But he features in the third book his coronation. So, and then the slave owner, one of the slave owners listed in the third book, Cecilius Claudius Isidorus. Mm-hmm. He actually was a real historical figure, but he let, when he died, he left behind uh, over 4,000 slaves, 3,600 pairs of oxen, you know, 250,000 <laughs> heads of cattle, 60 million sesterces. So he was a real historical figure. He died one of the richest Roman men, and he was a, a former freedman, but he's listed in a couple, they're like scanned books. Uh-huh. So if that tells you anything, they're, they're books that have been scanned and put on the internet. Uh, they're uh-huh. like historical texts, uh, like he was in the natural history of uh, Pliny, right? Uh-huh. So trying to find some of the information on these figures, and obviously he's just a head, you know? Uh, I kind of made up some stuff, a lot of stuff about him because I, there are no details, you know? So uh-huh. it was that was the difficult thing about historical fiction when you go too far back into history. It's just finding the details. So uh, I'm always specifically interested in how or whether authors have researched historical attitudes towards sexuality in writing these books. Now, you've set up a, you know, a deliberately single sex community for the Amazons. Is, 
is there anything that you researched around classical attitudes towards sexuality and gender that went into how the dynamics of that worked? Or was it more, you know, here's a premise and, and here's how it, it feels like it would work out for me? So I actually did a lot of reading about uh, sexuality and gender of, of ancient Greece and somewhat of ancient ancient Rome. They're kind of hand in hand. I did not necessarily include that in the community that I created. So because here's the thing, when you go so far back in ancient history, who do they write about? Men. Uh-huh. And so there is actually some documentation of males in ancient Greece where it was common practice for an older male to take a younger male as like a submissive sexual partner, but then they're still expected when they become an adult to marry a woman. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it was also degrading to be as a male to be on the receiving end if you were an adult to be the submissive one. And they were actually derided uh, as they got older. Yeah, it's all bound up in, in you know, binaries of class and status as well as gender. Yes, and and like a mentor-mentee kind of role. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as women, they don't. there's not a lot that I found about women. Women really had no value beyond, you know, birthing children. Some communities, women took up more, uh, more valuable roles, but still it was mostly fell on the men. And when you look over now at ancient Rome, women weren't allowed to, uh, they weren't ruling, they were upper class, they had upper class women. Now, one of the things that I found most interesting as far as gender concerned with ancient Rome is women were actually allowed to be gladiators. They, it was, it was a very popular practice for women, for the upper class women to become gladiators. And it wasn't until uh, about 200 CE that Septimius Severus, he was the uh, emperor, I think at the time, he outlawed women becoming gladiators. In the third book, it does feature female gladiators, and that is an accurate historical thing. There were women gladiators. Um, When it talks about what the women gladiators wore, they weren't allowed to wear helms. All of that is actual stuff that I researched about the female gladiators. And for the most part, the female gladiators, they fought female gladiators. But in my particular story, I did have one female gladiator as the Sagittarius, which is the mounted archer. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different types of gladiators. So I did a lot of research on gladiators, on what they ate, how they lived, if they were paid, how they became gladiators, uh, all of that stuff. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research on um, just uh, ancient Rome in general, even even the uh, how the slave trade. I had to do a lot of research on the slave trade of ancient Rome. Oh, yeah. Um, the, The currency. That was another difficult thing to do. Uh, what the currency was like, how much a slave would be purchased for in the currency of that time, um, just the general process of it, you know, as far as where they're brought in, how they're kept, um, how they're auctioned off, uh, what the the privileges and rights of slaves were. And actually, slaves in ancient Rome had a lot of privileges and rights. They some they were allowed to earn a wage. They could earn a wage. They could own other slaves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there there were, uh, it was a lot of interesting research, but I tried to make it as detailed as possible. And you, as far as gender is concerned, you know, there were women gladiators. And it wasn't until, I think, a couple hundred years later when Christianity really started to take hold 
that's when this emperor banned women from competing in the arenas. And I think it, the, they maybe it wasn't that much longer after that the gladiator gladiatorial games really started going away. Uh-huh. So, so having built up all of this store of research, I, I always think of it as uh, the research compost heap that's just waiting for story seeds to fall into it. But are you looking for other projects to use all that in, or are you want to move on to other historic settings? So the, uh, the, all the research I have, and I, I really, I like I said, I maybe forty five pages. Of, of this research that I have for each of these uh, ancient Greek books with names and places and, and just all of these details. Uh, and it was really handy going from book to book. As far as writing more historical fiction, I don't know what I'll write when I write it. It's whatever <laughs> catches my eye. I have numerous books in the bank, you know, uh-huh. stuff that I, I will write an entire page synopsis for my own personal use. And then when I finish a book, I'll look and I'll say, what's catching my eye? And I've even started a book that's caught my eye, stopped it and went to something else. And I don't usually do that. But but sometimes it, something won't get out of your head. Mm-hmm. You can't force it. And you just have to go with with what you're what's calling you. One thing that I've 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 been asked many times if I would continue this particular world, this particular storyline People want to know about Kiri. They want to know about Queen Oriana of her tribe. And and I know that I'm never going to write another story specifically about Kiri. It's mm-hmm. set first person. It's in Kiri's view, viewpoint. And I'm never going to write another story. This story, for me, in her viewpoint, ends and the end of book three. Uh-huh. If I did another book of this time period, it would be about Queen Oriana, and it would be like one book, kind of her life. Because uh-huh. I thought of all of the characters that I had of the series, she was the most interesting. She had a very interesting and difficult background. And for someone so young to work so hard and become who she was at the time she was, to me, there was a story there. Now, if I'm ever going to get around to writing that story, I'm not sure. Uh-huh. And I rationalized being able to write this story with, I'm not sure if it would be first person again, like with the other ones, or if it would be told third person. I know that it would overlap with uh-huh. the series, but because of the way the first series is written, I didn't think it would be that much of a big deal because there's so much from her viewpoint that needs to be filled in. So as far as other historical fiction, you know, it's hard to say. I do love a good steampunk. <laughs> so while that's not traditional historical fiction, it's something that I would consider. The only steampunk-ish book that I have written is actually set on another planet. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that that is, uh, that's not really, um, that's neither here nor there. So, yeah. but I wouldn't rule it out because there's, stuff is always catching my eye. And, and sometimes I listen to a song and it's like, oh, that gives me an idea for a book. Sometimes I read a book and it gives me an idea for a book, right? Or, uh-huh. you know, or watch a video. And so, you know, if I read a book, a historical fiction book, and I say, oh, you know, this time period is really fascinating, which is what happened when I was reading a lot of Xena fan fiction. I'm like, this uh-huh. time period is really fascinating. And and so you just get sucked in. And so I would never rule out writing a historic, historical fiction book, another series even, because it really just comes down to what catches your fancy. Yeah, so. absolutely. So what are some of the most fascinating 
facts you turned up when you were doing your research or you know is there some particular source that just really grabbed your fancy so one thing that i have always always loved and i think maybe this was why i also wrote the ancient greek series is i have been a huge fan of the greek and roman myths for my entire life you know you're forced to study mythology growing up sometimes so i've just always loved the greek mythology Okay, did you did you put together an entire genealogical chart at age 10 like I did? Uh, I'm not sure if I did that, but I wrote like fake plays. Uh. So they were they were terrible and I was probably about the same age, so they were pretty bad. But while while my series isn't, you know, dedicated historical fiction, obviously because there's a lot of detail you don't know, uh, there's technically Amazons are fictional characters, so there's a little leeway. But some of the interesting things that I learned is that uh, there's a there's a festival in ancient Greece that's called Manukahia. The Athenians would offer Artemis little round cakes topped with uh, little tor- torches, and the cakes the name of the cake meant shining all around, and they were likely in reference to the full moon, which according to myth shone on the Athenian fleet during the Battle of Sal- Salamis as they defeated the invading Persians. So. They would offer these little cakes asking for protection. So today they petition Artemis for protection. Many of her, many offer cookies, cupcakes, and other small round cakes circled with candles, especially during the full moon in late April or early May. That's what they used to do. Now, wow. here's the fact is that that is the uh, originating tradition behind a birthday cake. So a lot of people don't realize that. Little round uh, cakes. I... The, and I, I researched it. I found more than one reference that they suspect. It's obviously there's no saying, well, we got this from the ancient Greek cakes. But that is most likely where the tradition of a birthday cake with topped with candles came from because they would offer these round cakes topped with candles. But that is what the cake actually meant. So there are a lot of the a lot of myths uh, that I listed um, in the, the third book and the second book. Um, even in the first one, there are a lot of myths, like slight little myths, where uh-huh. when they're doing a ceremony, it will kind of mention the myth behind the ceremony. And that's stuff I actually looked up and, uh-huh. because I just find the mythology interesting. And one of the other um, things that I wanted to make to note is I, I've actually had a lot of emails about the series when I had it posted online years ago, when I first finished it. Yeah. And one person said that they were a student of history and they inquired why I used the term Air or Erus instead of Domine or Dominus, which you see in a lot of like master slave mm-hmm. uh, stories. So I, I actually save all these links and I found a couple different references, but one of them was this you really had to dive for it. But the person said that Domine and Dominus were what they termed a silver, silver Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said that the Greeks coming over, they actually. In in uh, in Rome, they used a lot of like bastardized Greek words. Mm-hmm. And when they brought Greeks over, they had Greek slaves. They didn't use the silver tongue Latin. They would use more of a like a, a as they say the vulgar Latin. <laughs> the vo- well, it wasn't even Latin. Yeah. Some of it was just Greek. So uh-huh. it would be the difference between saying, "Wow, you know, my master, look out, there's a truck coming," versus. Hey boss, look out! There's a truck. You know what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. Obviously, there are no trucks. But Air or Erus were actually um, were actually the the bastardized, uh, more less formal terms to address one's master or mistress in the at the time. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting because you do see a lot of Domine Dominus, and when you look it up, it really it is like basic 
silver tongue Latin. Mm-hmm. And he, when you start thinking about it, it made complete sense to me because look how we speak now. We don't we don't speak very formal to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, there there's a difference between recorded language and language that people actually spoke. And again, that's another thing that it's it's difficult to really find this information when their time period is so distant. Yeah, and and the the social dynamics of how people address each other and refer to each other. I mean, this is something I find fascinating and incorporated probably uh, at too great a length in my own writing, where the distinction between who uses which words is meaningful in the story. It it is. It really is. And if you want, you know, you want the the story to be even if it's if it's kind of a you want it to have that three dimensionality. Yes, even if no one else knows, if you take the time to put all of these details, it makes it more believable. And I think that the details that when you research the details, that even if nobody cares about when you put such detail and such research research into your book, I think it really and for me personally, it does. It helps bring the story to life to people. Yeah, I think even if the readers don't realize they care, that they would notice the difference. Yes, I think that's exactly it. And my last fun fact, uh, I guess I call them okay. a fun fact. I don't know. They're fun. They're fun for me. Yes. But when I mentioned earlier that a slave can own another slave, that slave of a slave was called a vicarious. Now, for uh-huh. anybody that is a fan of the English language, when you live vicariously through someone, that is where that came from. And 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 it's the same word as vicar in the church. Yes, a slave of a slave. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I don't know. There were a lot of things, a lot of things that I learned, just some of the little facts, you know, Um, I learned a lot about PTSD. Uh So that was a challenge with historic fiction is writing about PTSD in a way that would you would be able to equate it to something like an ancient time. Mm -hmm. Because while PTSD is a modern term, post-traumatic stress disorder is a modern term. It is not something that is a modern affliction. It is something that has affected humans for as long as humans have been traumatized. Yeah. You just maybe didn't know what to call it or what what the symptoms were, you know. So that was harder research mm-hmm. for sure. But yeah, it was just fun learning some of these other facts that you can look and say, oh, well, this kind of is related to something that I know or do now. So, Kelly, if listeners wanted to follow you on social media or to find your books online, where should they go? So I'm obviously on Amazon. I am on the Regal Crest website. I am on Twitter at W-O-R-D-N-R-D 68. That's word nerd without the E, 68. Um, my website is www.katen-author.com. Uh-huh. And then I'm on Facebook, uh, Kate and Author. Okay. So thank you so much for being our guest on the show this week. Thank you very much for having me. This is, uh, it's always interesting to talk with someone who appreciates some of the parts, some of the different books that I write, like the detail that you put into it. And if you're a historical fiction fan, then you understand the detail of looking up the history of such things. So mm-hmm. it's been a delightful to talk to you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 